Do you really want your company to stand out in the crowded digital space? Do you want to get more people to know, like, and trust you with your story? Authentic Web Video Marketing Agency can help you to collect those stories, the stories that sell, connect the stories to the situation, produce the videos that you need in each of the situations, and then use the latest techniques, including video ads, retargeting, and email to deliver those video stories. Authentic Web is the video production and marketing agency trusted by top marketers to help their story stand out in a crowded space. Visit AuthenticWeb.media to learn more. In a world full of boring stories, bad videos, and marketing misinformation, one very tall man with a weird last name will use his microphone. Is this thing on? Use his video marketing knowledge. It's the red button, right? And use his friends. Please be on the show. To change that. You are listening to The Garlic Marketing Show with Ian. What? No, that's how you pronounce it. Well, if you say so, your host, Ian Garlic. Let's get started, and we're and and we're listening to the Garlic Marketing Show. Actually, you're listening to it. I'm talking about this is Ian Garlic, host of the Garlic Marketing Show, and I usually have a big long intro for my guests, but the Marketing Journal called my next guest one of the greatest marketing minds ever. So I'm not going to talk about anything else. I'm not going to talk about his book. I'm not going to talk about category design because I'm going to let him talk about it. Christopher Lockhead, thank you for being on. Mr. Garlic, it is a pleasure to be on your show and, and to be with your listeners. Oh, I love it. We were talking before the show, and I was like, well, we got to stop because we were just having so much fun. Um, so you, you've, you've been a three-time CMO. You've been an entrepreneur. I mean, you have testimonials from the founder of Salesforce on your website. Um, how did you get started in marketing? Well, uh, when I was 18 years old, I, I got thrown out of school for being stupid. <laughs> and so with very, with very little other options, I, I was uh, lucky enough to get a manual labor job working as an orderly in a hospital. So I was either going to spend the rest of my life shaving guys' balls for a living or start a company. <laughs> I'm assuming you don't shave balls anymore. <laughs> Uh, in emergency situation, I can. So, you know, for someone like you, it would be uh, if I had to, I would. But uh, I prefer not to. <laughs> oh man, I love where this is going already. Um, <laughs> uh, note to editor: make sure to mark this explicit. I don't want. I, I don't want Apple knocking my down my door. So, um, so tell me about the evolution. When did? What was your first marketing adventure? You know, so of course, being a being an entrepreneur, you're you're a marketer, of course, you know, and and I was fascinated by marketing and sales, um, and I had to because uh, if I didn't uh, sell something, then uh, I wasn't going to be able to make the the rent, and the lady that was my landlord was going to throw me out. So, you know, from a very early age, I I was really focused on sales and marketing, and then ultimately, as an entrepreneur, I started a um, a small boutique uh, consulting company in the area of Salesforce automation and customer relationship management in the very early days of that market. And um, that company got acquired by a Silicon Valley-based software company about 20 years ago. And so at about 27, 28 years old, uh, I was the head of marketing for a publicly traded tech company on NASDAQ. And, um, you know, that was my first real marketing job was 
um, running marketing for a, uh, an enterprise software company. What were your challenges at that point? I mean, you know, did you not know better and you're just running full speed or, you know, how did you move into that position so fast? You know, I was uh, a lot lucky, of course. And um, but that said, you know, a central theme of my book, Play Bigger, is this notion of position yourself or be positioned. And so when I hung out my shingle as an entrepreneur for the second time, my first company, the one I started when I was 18, failed. I then went and helped another startup and did a few things and then ultimately did this other startup um, in, the, in the Salesforce automation area, which got acquired. And so I was able to establish myself as an expert in my field, and at the time that was uh, customer relationship management and Salesforce automation. And so the company that acquired my little uh, boutique consulting company, and ultimately I ended up coming to the California from Canada and running marketing for that company, uh, they wanted somebody who was a, a domain expert. And I had positioned myself as such. I, I was consulting to huge banks and huge pharma companies and, and the like in the area, Salesforce Automation and CRM. I did a lot of public speaking. I did some writing. And so I was, I was able to position myself in an early market category that was starting to grow as one of the early uh, pundits, if you will. And that's ultimately what propelled me. Awesome. 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 So – you know, this really quickly goes into the, your idea of, of of play bigger. Can you tell me a little bit about the whole idea behind the book? And first of all, before we even get into it, um, you know, what I love is your your uh, pop up for lead bigger on your website. It says you've spent, you've wasted. What is it you say? You've wasted twenty dollars and worse things. Yeah, you've done stupider <laughs> things with twenty bucks. And actually, I just noticed today. I, I don't know shit about the publishing business, but. For some reason, our book on Amazon was like I think sixteen ninety nine for a while, and in the last few days they dropped it to fifteen seventy seven or something crazy. So maybe we need to update the website that says you've done stupider things with fifteen dollars and seventy seven cents. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? That made me pay attention. I'm like, well, it's not even twenty dollars now, and I'm like, I should buy it right now. And I was actually thinking that I'm like, oh, that's genius. I thought that was intentional. <laughs> Evil genius. Evil genius. Uh, so tell me about the whole idea behind the book because it, it's really interesting. When I was going through it. I'm like, wow, this is fantastic, but I want you to tell it so I, I don't butcher it. Yeah. So here's the big idea. When you talk to most uh, entrepreneurs and even most marketers, most CMOs, and at a high level you say, okay, what are you doing to be successful? What tends to come out of their mouth is I want to build a legendary product or service, and I want to build a legendary company that delivers that product or service. And so, if you will, there's two big, there's two big levers. There's product and company. And then from a marketing perspective, we market that product and that company into a market. And here's the big aha. If we market our product, service, and or company into an existing market, we are living inside somebody else's game. Every market category gets designed, either intentionally or by accident. So, for example, um, you ever wonder I, – I, I think about these things, right? You ever wonder why a high-end pair of sunglasses costs 300 bucks and a pretty good flat-screen TV at Costco is 150 bucks? And you sort of say, well, what the fuck's going on here? One of, these, 
One of these products is a piece of plastic, and maybe an awesome piece of plastic and an important one, but that's what it is. And the other one is an advanced piece of technology that talks to a satellite in space, <laughs> and one is double the price of the other. Who is it who decided that that's how we should think about the value of those products? That's category design. And so the big aha in, in, in uh, my book, Play Bigger, is that most people pull two levers, product and company. And when they go to market them, they make an unconscious choice to position themselves inside an existing category that was created by somebody else. When you look at what the legends did, whether it was Steve Jobs, Henry Ford, or Clarence Birdseye, the category designer of frozen food – they did something different. They pulled a third lever, full, third lever, which is category. They designed the category. That is to say, they taught the world how to think about a problem and a solution so that people got the problem in the way they wanted them to. And once the world sees the problem, bang, they want the solution. That's so true. It's awesome. But this is this happens to me that little silence. So when someone gives that big idea, and then my brain starts going, <laughs> and I love. I mean, it's it's you know it's a huge huge idea. But how do people harness it? Right? How do we harness it in a, in a marketing play? I mean, do we just cut our business loose? I mean, do we say, well, that's not for me? Where where does that come into play from? A, even from a, like a CMO standpoint, how does a CMO harness it if if they're selling widgets and they're in the widget category? Yeah. So the question is, how can we either design a net new category or redesign an existing category? And I'll give you two simple examples. So in the 1920s, this guy named Clarence Birdseye uh, has a an aha, and I could explain if you care how he has the aha, that you can take a frozen, in this case it's fish is his first example, and you can take a fish and freeze it, and then if you heat it up later on, it tastes almost like it did when it was fresh. And that's ultimately what leads to his idea that we should have this new category of food called frozen food. Now, in order to make that work, Clarence does what every legendary marketer has intuitively done. He creates a unique spot for his product. And so if you go back and look at the early ads and marketing for bird's eye foods, what you discover are themes like, um, how do we get fresh tasting uh, vegetables in February? And nobody had ever thought about that before. And once he poses questions along those lines, people go, yeah, that's right. How come we can't get fresh vegetables in February? You know, to quote the big Lebowski, this aggression will not stand, man. And so they immediately want frozen food because it, he creates a problem, which we then relate to, and then the world wants his solution. Awesome. That makes sense? All makes 100% sense. And then so that's kind of a net new category. Um, an existing category redesign would be more like something like Uber. So the problem, if you will, called um, personal transportation is one we all understand and uh, we all have solutions for. We drive cars, we take bikes, we walk, we take the subway, we take you know what, whatever it is. We take a cab, we take a limo, etc. So this problem of how do I get my ass from point A to point B had been solved. And then this guy named Travis – uh, almost 10 years ago now is in Paris and it's raining and he's trying to get a cab and he can't get one because all the cabs are taken. And he has this 
insight, this aha moment where he says, how come I can't press a button on my iPhone and have an awesome car come get me immediately? And so he reimagines the problem called personal uh, transportation in the, in this case, in the context of modern technology. And as a result, bang, a whole new category emerges. And of course, in this case, causes a massive amount of disruption. And so whether it's a net new category, that is to say a problem that people don't know they have, that you can then go evangelize, open them up to a, a, that way of thinking and therefore a new solution like Birdseye did with f- frozen food or like Travis did with personal transformation, uh, transportation, the, the principles are the same, which is I as an entrepreneur, I as a marketer, look at the world in a particular way. I see a problem. That I see that problem in a unique way. And then I evangelize that problem such that the world gets it. And when the world agrees with me about the problem, that's how you get Apple, where people literally camp out overnight to get their next new product. Wow. Yeah. And it's as simple as that, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing I think uh, that's important to underscore is in, in uh, our book, Play Bigger, we analyzed every venture capital-funded uh, tech company started in America from 2000 to 2015. And we built a big data store of it, and we did some uh, data science analysis. And in particular, one of the questions that we asked was, uh, most marketers study market share. And as you know, of course, market share data is critical. We asked a different question, which is, what percentage of market cap, that is to say, total value created in the category goes to the leader because we kept seeing particularly in tech but in a lot of other industries as well that more and more things were starting to look like a winner take all game um you know facebook has no competitor uh, google for all practical purposes has no competitor uh snapchat for all practical purposes has no competitor etc and so more and more businesses are kind of winner take all so we wanted to understand how much of the value creation, that is to say total market cap created, goes to the leader? Well, in the tech industry, it turns out that number is 76%. So here's the thing I would posit to you. Most people in marketing make an unconscious decision to position their product or service inside of a category somebody else created. When they do that, if there's a category king in place, that is to say a market leader – that market leader more than likely has a disproportionate amount of the economics, and it might be as high as 76% or more. And so my point is, when we launch our products, services, and companies into existing categories, not only are we playing somebody else's game, but we are probably competing for, at most, 25% of the economics. And so as crazy and as, 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 as backward as it might sound, Attacking an existing category is more risky than designing a new one. But it, it, yeah, that I just had someone that it, it was an expert in finances, uh, and you know it, it's and I've said this before. I, you know I traded for a hedge fund, and what's obvious has no value, right? And and that's yep. and that that's exactly it. It's you know it, it's. It seems obvious that we should go and attack something that's existing. And so many times people say, well, no one else is doing it, um, so I should do it. But then other people are saying, well, there's this big market and they have X amount of share. And if I could just get 1% of that share and blah, 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 blah. Um, so th- that's, it's a 
big point to make. You know, if you're entering into the market and you're you're a late adopter, you have a huge uphill battle. Uh, Unless you can redesign the category. But if you're not fundamentally redesigning the rules in the category, you're playing someone else's game. And look, I'll give you a specific example. So um, Microsoft launched a competitor to Google called Bing. And when they launched that competitor, Steve Ballmer, who was the chief executive of Microsoft at the time, said the search market is ready for a good old-fashioned feature war, and we're going to give it to them. Microsoft has spent over $10 billion on Bing, (laughs) and it has done nothing, not a dime, to hurt Google's market share or market cap. And so here's what I would posit to you. If Microsoft, with $10 billion, can't overtake an existing category king by uh, launching an attack play against them, what makes us think we can in our businesses? That's a valuable, valuable point. Um, and Google's tried to do that, too, where they've tried to enter categories that they, that they couldn't. Um, I mean, Google Plus was a perfect example. Isn't that amazing? So it turns out that many of the greatest category king companies in history – have no fucking idea what made them category kings. <laughs> oh, the irony. If, if Google understood what made them Google, and I can explain it to you if you care. I do. They, they never would have been Google Plus because Google Plus was a giant failure. It was a me too play against Facebook. And by that point, Facebook had already created the category and was the category king by a mile. And so, so in that instance, Google made the Microsoft mistake against Facebook. <laughs> so so crazy. And, 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 it, isn't it? And Yeah. Yep. Yep. So what... Man, I have so many questions. What... So if I do... If I'm a CMO in a company, right? If I'm not the leader of the company, if, I, if you're... Because you were the CMO in a lot of these companies. I was chief, the CMO of three pu- public companies. Yes, sir. So how do you take and apply that? How do you do that to to take your company, whatever it is, to become the category king or invent a new category? Is there a system inside Play Bigger that you were talking about? I mean, is there some little technique or do I say, screw it, I'm leaving this company? So, yes, it turns out there is. You know, a lot of people uh, told us when we were writing the book Play Bigger, me and my co-authors, that, look – you know, what you guys are talking about is that's the shit that Steve Jobs does and Henry Ford does and Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce. And, you know, the, these amazing, legendary uh, innovators, our marketers, entrepreneurs, et cetera. And, you know, you either have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, listen, if we can teach people to do brain surgery, maybe we can teach people <laughs> to do the intuitive things that a Jobs or an Ellison at Oracle or, or, or any example you want to have can do. And so that's this new management discipline called category design. All right. So tell me what category design is. <laughs> so, ca- you know, it is, it, so everybody says, oh, we got to go to market. We got to have a go-to market strategy. Category design is about making the market come to you. Uh, another way of saying it is um, – Everybody knows that famous Victor Hugo quote, uh, even all the armies of the world cannot stop an idea whose time has come. Category design is about making it our time. And so what category designers do at a high level is, number one, 
they uh, ident- they have an aha, they have an insight, and there's different kinds of insight, so we can talk about that if you like. Number two, that insight opens them up to a problem, and they get incredibly passionate about solving that problem. You know, one of my favorite examples, uh, I live in Santa Cruz, California, and I love to surf, and uh, a few blocks from where I live, the legendary uh, Jack O'Neill lives, and Jack is the founder of the O'Neill Company and the creator of the surfing wetsuit. Mm-hmm. And when you buy an O'Neill wetsuit, there's a tag on it with Jack's face. He's got a beard, just kind of like you, and he, but he's got a patch. You know, he looks like a pirate. And uh, and and there's a quote on the on the tag that says, "I'm just a surfer who wanted to surf longer." You know, that was his insight. And from there, they go on and they evangelize a problem. So, for example, when Reed Hastings and the team at Netflix created Netflix, they did not compete with Blockbuster. They did, and I'm going to say this word on purpose, something different. And they evangelized the problem and the solution. So what did they say? The paradigm in the market in that category at the time was we drive to a video store. We return the video that we have. We have probably our family with us, and uh, we want to go rent a new video. They don't have that video. We have to have an inane fight amongst the family to see what choice B would be. And then when we return the video to the sweaty, zitty kid behind the counter, we got to pay a late fee. And that's the paradigm in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. So what Netflix does is they say, uh, we want to do something different. Instead of doing that, go to a website and tell us what your favorite movies are pay us 15 bucks a month or whatever it was in the beginning and we'll send them to you in the mail and so what they did was they and this is what category designers do they conditioned the world to think differently about a problem called how do i get the video content i want in my home and once the world uh, was able to see the problem from reed's point of view they literally stopped going to blockbuster and blockbuster went bankrupt And so category designers teach the world to shift from the way it is now. In the book, we talk about these things called Frodo's or from twos, from the way it is to the way we want it to be. And they do that by evangelizing a problem uh, with this thing called the point of view, which we could talk about. Um, And when the world accepts your point of view about a problem and a solution, pow, that's how you get Netflix. Wow. Wow. It's powerful stuff that, I mean, can be harnessed on a, a much smaller scale, right? I mean, you can do category design, whatever you're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, one of my best friends in the world is a now-retired uh, realtor turned, uh, and now he's a real estate investor, and he's really working on, on uh, some nonprofits. And um, as a realtor in his market, he redesigned what a realtor is in Manteca, California. And he crushed everybody by doing that. And I can give you the specifics if you care. But whether it's an individual uh, solopreneur in the parlance of our times or it's Uber or Facebook or Google, category design is always at play when something new comes out and immediately changes the game and everybody moves from the way it was to the way, in this case, the marketer, the innovator, the entrepreneur wants it to be. Mm. So I kind of want to hear the real estate story. I kind of want to hear a story that of when you've done this. And I also want to kind of hear what, uh, you know, let's say someone that has a marketing company, like a, another Salesforce or a software, how can they do that to their existing software? I mean, is, is there a methodology 
that you go through or is it is it is soul searching for a CMO is it what would what would you do <laughs> so I would employ category design as a discipline um, and it's different from marketing. Marketing is a critical part of category design, but category design is a company initiative. And it turns out if you unpack what Steve Jobs did by way of example, you can turn it into a process or a methodology. And that's that's what we outline in our book. And at a high level, I can walk you through it if you like. Yeah, I would love to. But, you know, I, I have to admit you got me so excited that I didn't have the book, but I bought it while we're talking. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to send you a copy as well, but I'm stoked that you bought it. Thank you. Um, uh, on, so before you get into that on a quick side note, just as this, this is a completely self-serving argument that I have with a bunch of marketers. When, when was the decision made not to, cause you have, I think you have a great voice. When was the decision made to have someone else narrate the book? You know, it's funny. Uh, I wanted to narrate the book. And uh, our publisher is the company is HarperCollins. And the gal who's our publisher at HarperCollins, she's Gary Vaynerchuk's publisher. She's um, Jack Welsh's publisher. Uh, how, how we got her, I'll never know. She must have been drunk that day. But um, And so I, I raised that. my hand and said, hey, <laughs> I, I'd like to read the book. And she said no. And I said, what do you mean? You think the guy that does this professionally and has done it 4,336 times is going to do a fucking better job than me? And she said, yeah. And I said, all right. <laughs> what am I, what, I'm not going to argue with her. <laughs> so so that's why. And by the way, you know, Sean, I think, did a great job, although it would have been really fun for me to read it. No question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love that. My my favorite thing is when the authors read their books. And then I feel like they're my best friend. And then eventually when I – because I reach out to them and we do become friends. And it's like – I. I then I'm like, I feel like I've known you my entire life because you've been in my ear the whole time. Um, well, if, if you want me in your ear, you can subscribe to Legends and Losers on iTunes. <laughs> oh, I already did that. So I will be listening to that too. Um, so tell me at the high level, the process of play, play bigger. Yeah. So the first one is to acknowledge that the rules of the game have changed, that in most markets today, one company takes the vast majority of the economics. And a lot of people find that upsetting. A lot of people don't want to acknowledge that. But uh, if you don't think that's the case, just ask taxi drivers how they feel about Uber. And so that dynamic is playing out over and over and over again. And so the first thing really is a mindset that says the, the likelihood in my space that there's going to be one company that wins is really high. We're going to be that company. The way you might think about it is somebody's got to win. It might as well be us. So that's the first one. From there, you have to ask yourself some questions. Number one, what problem do we solve? And you have to be able to solve that problem or you have to be able to articulate that problem like you're explaining it to your mom. Uh, number two, um, if we solve that problem, what category are we in? What would we call this thing? Human beings need labels to stick on stuff. So if I say to you, hey, I want to tell you about the brand new Mustang that I bought. If you know what a muscle car is and you think muscle cars are cool, then you maybe want to have that conversation with me. If you don't know what a muscle car is, you say, well, what's a Mustang? And now I have to explain to you what a Mustang, like a brand is, in the context of other vehicles you might know. And so human beings put things in these buckets called categories. So question one is, um, what problem do we solve? Question two is, if we solve it perfectly, what category are we in? What would you call the bucket or the label that you would put on us and our whole space? And then the third one is, 
if we do that legendarily and we get 76% of the economics, how much is our company worth? And entrepreneurs and marketers who can answer that question have taken the first big step in category design. Oh, man. I can't wait to read this book. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, can you, would you mind telling me, have, have you seen anyone fail at this, at, at category yeah. design? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, so uh, one of my favorite examples, it's one that I'm bummed out about. I remember I was at, at one of the early TEDs where um, – uh, oh, shit. I'm going to blank on his name. It'll come to me as soon as we get off this podcast. But uh, the founder of the Segway. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, shit. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. He was there demoing the Segway and, you know – if you've ever been to TED, you know, like it's just a, you know, IQ sort of uh, orgy, right? And so everybody's blown away by this thing. And like I got on one and it's an incredible pro- a piece of technology, right? Dean and Kamen. at the time he had raised – go ahead. Dean Kamen. Dean Kamen. Thank you. And Dean, by the way, I'm not, I'm not shitting on Dean in any way. I think he's a legendary entrepreneur and innovator and, and I think we have a lot to thank him for. In this case, however, he raises tons of money from John Doerr at uh, Kleiner Perkins, who at the time is the most powerful VC in Silicon Valley. And they, they have this giant vision that they're going to transform transportation and fix pollution and cl- you know, congestion in cities and all this good shit, right? Well, here's what happens. When they go to market the Segway, they have a product and a feature conversation, they essentially do what most marketers do, which is they say, isn't our new carbodingulator cool? And the world doesn't get it because fundamentally marketers and innovators believe their, their, their products and services are so awesome that all we have to do is show it to the world. And the job of marketing is to do the showing of the product. Well, in this case, people didn't get why they needed it. They didn't know what problem it solved. And so it suffered the fate of all legendary innovations that don't have category design, which is it becomes a small niche. And so today it's for tourists and mall cops. <laughs> oh, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yes. And, and, and not to be overly insulting, but both look dorky on it, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> on a side note, we were in Boston one time and we happened to be staying right above a Segway tour thing. And uh, and we, needless to say, had a few drinks. And we're just sitting there heckling everyone coming out of the Segway. And that was uh, it's a horrible thing to say. But, man, come on. You're in Boston in the home of the marathon. Walk around a little. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, um, another one that I would share with you that's much more recent uh, that uh, that's really quite fascinating. I'm just pulling up the data because I want to make sure I get the quote right for everybody, is the smartwatch. So unfortunately, Apple is being run today by a guy who's a lot more like Steve Bomber than Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And so in spite of the fact that Bomber, uh, excuse me, that Jobs was one of the greatest category designers in history, Apple today doesn't seem to know how to do category design. And so there was an article recently in TechCrunch that said smartwatch sales are tanking. And it goes on to say at the very beginning, it doesn't seem that people understand why they need a smartwatch. And so the Apple iWatch isn't going anywhere. And the reason it's not working is because 
Apple made the mistake that so many other companies make, which is they launch a legendary product, and there's no question the iWatch is a spectacular product. However, because they don't do category design, that is to say, teach the world how to think about a problem and a solution, and therefore, ba-boom, the world goes, ah, I don't know why I need that, and so we don't buy it. Oh, yep. Uh, you know, I, I just did a keynote last week, and I talked about you know the difference between MP3 players and when the iPod came out. It wasn't the most feature-rich one by any means, but it was it was what X thousands songs in your pocket. Well, and see, you just said it. That line, you know, twenty thousand songs or whatever the number was that was on all the billboards at the time. That was Jobs' way of framing a problem. Because every MP3 player, not only were they horrible products, which they were, but the MP3 vendors were having a product feature conversation. So they were saying it slices and it dices and it integrates with this and it ram, ram, ram. Well, mm-hmm. all that carbodingulation talk is just like the – I don't know if you remember the Peanuts cartoons. Oh, yeah. When the, when the adults talk. Yeah, and so when people speak speeds and feeds and features, people go wah, 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 and they're like, ah. Oh, that sounds hard. Even the name MP3 player. What the fuck does MP3? You know, if you're an average consumer, like I don't even know what you're talking. Oh, that's the name of the technical, the technical name of the file of all the retarded things to call a product. But I digress. <laughs> so when Jobs wants to create a whole new category, he says, you know, I forget the number, but twenty five thousand songs in your pocket. To your exact point, and then all of us go. Wow, we could bring our, our our digital music with us. We got it because of that one sentence that communicated a point of view about what was possible. Oh yeah, and man, and he was so good at that, and also making sure it was in line. Everything that that they designed, everything that they did, every feature was in line with that idea. Yes. Oh man, I, I'll give you another example that I love. Uh, Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. Yep. Uh, I don't know how many of these things my wife owns, but it's a lot, and I I would imagine most gals uh, own these things now. And here's the interesting thing. It's kind of a girdle 2.0. Yep. Right? Yep. Now, Sarah's a genius and a category designer because she's smart. She makes everything about Spanx, and I'm going to use this word on purpose, different. And the aha that she had, and it's on their website, you can go read it, is she's going to put on a pair of, I want to say it's white pants, but you can read the story. And she doesn't like the way she looks in them, and she wants some shit smoothed out. So she goes to work. When she launches this stuff, if she said these were, you know, newfangled underwear or a girdle 2.0 or used any current market category as the reference – Women might not have flocked to it. Instead, her greatest idea was to say that Spanx is a new category of undergarment called shapewear. And ladies, don't you want to look more shapely? And so the, the word shapewear is actually what makes Spanx Spanx. And yes, she does legendary marketing and packaging and the product is great and all those things. In in our book, Play Bigger, we talk about uh, prosecuting the magic triangle, getting product, company, and category right. Sarah's another great example. She got all three things right, but from a category design point of view, she did not fall into the trap of playing in the existing underwear, undergarment market. She created her own niche, and as a buddy of mine said, if you want to get riche, you got to create your own niche. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. 
man, those are great stories. Um, so now legends and losers, tell me about your podcast. What, what is it about? Why should I listen to it? Well, uh, our mantra is you can't be a legend without being a loser. And so, uh, everybody who's successful, you, me, and everybody listening, a huge part of what makes us successful are the scars and the broken bones we get. And we learn from those things, and that makes us stronger as we go forward. And when, you know, part of how we got to play bigger was understanding, you know, my own failures and, and, and those of my co authors. And then also analyzing to, to the discussion we just had what is it that makes, that separates some marketers and entrepreneurs from others? And let's have a rigorous dialogue about that. And so that's ultimately what led to category design and play bigger. I was fortunate enough to retire uh, not long after my book came out. And um, the cool thing about that is I've had – the book came out last June, so you know, seven or eight months, whatever it is. Uh, I've had time to interact with people all around the world who've read Play Bigger, and I get hits on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and emails and, uh, and so forth. Uh, people, and they have all kinds of questions, and, and, and they, wanna, they want more. And so Legends and Losers is the more. And so we talk about category design. We talk about uh, – but more than just business, we talk about how you design a legendary business and a legendary life because both of those things are you know, inextricably linked. And so we try to have very powerful dialogues with people about how they're designing a legendary life and or business and underscore – where were they, what, Where did they really lose? Where did it really hurt? What did they learn from those moments? And can they share that with people on a personal level? And along the way, we try to have a lot of fun and talk about some non-serious things like how the T-Rex turned into a legendary pet and how much scotch is appropriate to drink at the company meeting and so forth. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> All of it. Yeah, exactly. The bottle. <laughs> oh, man. That is fantastic. Um so we've got the book, we've got the podcast. What else is up for Christopher Lockhead? I mean, you, you're CMO three times. You know, is it, are these the two things? What What about your personal life? Yeah, so my life today is very simple, which uh, is a wonderful thing. I think for me, having a simple life is a, is a huge achievement. And so my life is really about trying to make a difference in the world. And that's what the book and the podcast is about. And trying to have a ton of fun, which both, you know, when you read our book, you'll see we swear in the book. We tell funny stories. I would encourage you to check out the footnotes because approximately a quarter of the footnotes are funny and or have some story tied to them. So we try to be playful and human beings in the book. Try to do that in the podcast. So try to make a difference. Try to have fun and try to do those two things with people I love. Uh, Try to get some great waves in Santa Cruz. Uh, Spend time with my amazing gal. And uh, I'm the proud father of seven tiny dinosaurs that most people call chickens and so uh we have we have a wonderful garden near the beach here in santa cruz with seven hens and uh they're funny and fun if you don't know anything about chickens uh, uh they're as they're as great as the greatest dog or cat you ever met yes yeah that's that's great on a, on a, uh, i'll tell uh, otters and chickens don't mix fyi uh, otters yeah <laughs> How did you discover that? <laughs> uh, well, we we were looking. We just bought a house on a lake, and we won the house. So we looked at had a chicken coop, and we're like, "This is awesome! We are going to have a chicken coop." And you know, I love like 
I love farming and, and cooking and growing our own food. And, you know, one of the places that we love going is Bluestone um, Barn in uh, Upper New York. And they, they have a chicken coop that they move around to essentially fertilize the everything. Sure. So I was, like, so excited about it. And the guy's like, I'm like, well, where are your chickens? He's like, so the otters get in and take care of the chickens. <laughs> otters are very nimble otters and, yeah. yeah and they're land, land otters i guess no the the, the lake otters they, oh the lake otters yeah the lake otters wow. too we were looking at a lake house and the lake otters came off and and uh oh i see yeah because here here in the as i like to call it the specific ocean uh we have a lot of otters here too we i i, I see otters pretty much every time i go surfing but the otters in the uh, in the pacific ocean don't come on land so i, I didn't realize there was a, a land otter yeah yeah the otter the otters um they come like they'll come you know a few like 10 20 yards onto land and and nest under places and and also take care of your chickens um. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 you learn very quickly with if you're going to do backyard chickening, I guess is what it's called, um, <laughs> that their safety is, is paramount. And so you have to create an environment for them where they're protected or, or otherwise, you know, horrible things are going to happen. Oh, man. And I love the fact that simple. I mean, simple is my word. Everyone at the beginning of the year is like, what's your word? And they're like, crush it. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like simplicity because I, re- I mean, I forget who said it, but simplicity is the ultimate luxury, isn't it? I really think so. You know, and you, you mentioned sort of trying to eat healthy and grow your own food. And, you know, there's this huge farm to table movement and organic and all that good stuff. And, you know, it's huge here in Northern California, as you might expect. And, and, uh, my gal, Carrie, my wife, Carrie, she grew up on, um, what is now the last, uh, commercial orchard in Silicon Valley in San Jose. Her father's 86 years old and he has about 600 fruit trees on about two and a half acres and he sells peaches and plums and all sorts of things on the on the side of the house on a honor system uh, stand. And so she got his, you know, DNA big time and so, um, or I should say bigly. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so we have a wonderful garden with seven wonderful hens and, um, and uh, we're all, all about that stuff. That's awesome. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for being on the show. Everyone, I mean, go pick up Play Bigger. Uh, listen to the Legends and Losers podcast. All those will be in the show notes. Just click on that image, flip it around, go to the link, and you will be there. I mean, this great marketing mind. If you're listening to this marketing show, you should be listening to that one as well. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate sharing all your knowledge and wisdom. I'm stoked to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. And thank you all for listening to the Garlic Marketing Show and taking Christopher and I on your journey. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow I and Garlic on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>